I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is episode 12. With this episode, we start a new deep dive into the broad topic area of science in modern America. For those of you just joining the podcast, except for one mini-episode interlude, our previous deep dive topic was a series of podcast episodes on automation. Thank you for all the feedback I received on those episodes. But starting with this episode, we'll be leaving automation and diving into new territory. There are two reasons I thought exploring science in modern America would be worthwhile. First, from a utilitarian standpoint, this semester at Virginia Tech, I'm taking a graduate course on science in modern America. So since I'll be researching, reading, and thinking a lot about this topic over the next 15 weeks, to me, it makes sense that this topic is a natural parallel for this podcast. Second, I think exploring science in modern America is particularly timely right now in America based on what is going on in the world around us. If you think back to the naive views we had just last year during the COVID crisis, we were thinking, if only we had a vaccine, once we get that vaccine, we'll all be saved. Yet, in reality, once we actually got the vaccine— A significant portion of Americans actively resisted taking the vaccine. Governors enacted legislation to prevent people from wearing masks and from receiving the vaccines. And many leaders and many in the media actively promoted misinformation. So much so that, according to the Mississippi State Department of Health, at least 70% of the recent calls to the Mississippi Poison Control Center have been related to ingestion of livestock or animal formulations of ivermectin purchased at livestock supply centers. Clearly, there seems to be a broad cultural misunderstanding of science and expertise in the United States in the year 2021. So with the theme, Science in Modern America, therefore in this podcast series, we'll explore what we mean by modern science. How does modern science differ from earlier ways we practice science or tried to understand the world? And more broadly, what do we mean by being modern? We'll also look at science in America and how our specific society and culture has influenced or has been affected by science. So to start this new podcast series, I have four articles that look back to science in America during a period in time when we were not yet modern. In many ways, America in the mid-19th century to the start of the 20th century was a developing country in our culture, our identity, and our institutions, especially our scientific institutions. Thus, to better understand science in modern America, we should first take a look at science when we were not yet modern. The four articles are Science and Social Values in 19th Century America, a Case Study in the Growth of Scientific Institutions by Charles Rosenberg, Eugenics in North America 
by Daniel Kevels. Science in the Cradle, Millicent Shin and her home-based network of baby observers, 1890 to 1910, by Christine von Ortsen. And Detecting Negro Blood, Black and White Identities and the Reconstruction of Sickle Cell Anemia, by Keith Whalu. In this podcast episode, I'll go into more detail in the first article, and I'll summarize the remaining three so that you can explore those on your own if they catch your eye. But just know that each of these articles, I think, provides a glimpse about science in America when America was not yet modern. Okay, let's dive in. The first paper we'll look at is Science and Social Values in 19th Century America, a case study in the growth of scientific institutions by Charles Rosenberg. Rosenberg is the Ernest E. Monrad Professor in the Social Sciences at Harvard University, and he has written widely on the history of medicine and science. Since we're jumping back in time, before we get to the paper, I just want to refresh our memories about the particular time period in the U.S. the paper focuses on, which is the mid-19th century, the 1850s. Just to give a few data points to sketch a picture of America back then, consider that in 1850, the U.S. had just added California as its 31st state. Utah and New Mexico, for example, were just territories. They weren't even states yet. American society itself was grappling with issues of not only what states are part of the country, but also who can be part of the country. Who is even considered a person? America still instituted slavery in the 1850s. Abraham Lincoln became president in 1860 after running an anti-slavery campaign. And in 1861, the U.S. Civil War started. Economically, the U.S. in the 1850s was very much focused on agriculture. In 1862, the Morrill Act granted thousands of acres of federal land to states, in part for them to create land-grant universities, to focus on practical education, especially in agriculture and the mechanical arts. My own university, Virginia Tech, first opened on October 1st, 1872, as a land-grant university, with the founding name Virginia Agricultural and Mechanical College. And again, to emphasize the focus on agriculture back then, with the 1887 Hatch Act, land-grant institutions were to create agricultural experiment stations designed to promote research specifically to benefit farmers. Okay, now on to the paper. The first paragraph of this paper is bookended with two great sentences that really, I think, give the flavor of the entire article. Rosenberg starts the essay with, In any culture, some values favor and others retard or positively oppose the development of science. And he finishes that first paragraph with, Like the transplant of any tissue, the organic structures of science may well be rejected by inappropriate hosts. I love that. In the paper, Rosenberg focuses as a case study on the role of social values in the creation of these scientifically-minded agricultural experiment stations. In particular, he details the efforts of two students, Evan Pugh from Pennsylvania and Samuel Johnson 
from New York, two Americans that were part of a large group of students who studied chemistry in Germany. Pugh returned to the U.S. after his studies and was instrumental in creating Pennsylvania's Agricultural College. And Johnson became a professor at Yale and helped to create the first agricultural experiment stations in America. Now, one of your questions might be, why were Americans going to study in Germany? Recall our new podcast theme, Science in Modern America. Unlike today, where the U.S. is known around the world for its university graduate research programs in both science and technology, this was not the case in the mid-19th century U.S. Back then, most U.S. faculty members were just teachers in colleges. They were not expected to or had training in doing scientific research. So, Americans who wanted to do scientific research had two basic options. Become an employee of one of the few large corporations that had corporate scientific research programs, or go to universities that had formal graduate research programs, such as the universities in Europe. While some Americans did choose the corporate route, some chose the university option. For example, traveling to countries like Germany to attend universities in Berlin. American culture back in the mid-19th century had strong religious flavors, especially evangelical pietism. And so doing research in a university, free from marketing and business constraints that might be found in a corporate lab, as well as toiling away for years on research projects that could improve the social good, these elements had parallels in these students' minds with their fervent religious devotions. Today, we might view their ideals as a bit prudish, but their religious idealism colored how those Americans viewed their fellow European students, since Europe in general was not nearly as saturated with evangelical religious fervor. For example, one American student complained about German students whose only pleasure seems to be in drinking beer, smoking pipes, and fighting duels. Another reflected about his American countrymen back home. It is only since coming to Europe that I have been able to understand my own countrymen and appreciate their good qualities. I believe that I can say with pride that there is not a more moral people on earth than our own, and this will account for some of our social habits, which I often see criticized. Another social force in the U.S. at that time was the spirit of manifest destiny, which drove Americans to expand across the North American continent to add territories and states to the growing United States. And there was also, in general, this idea of progress, which was a pervasive virtue back then that similarly drove economic, technological, and scientific expansions. I point out these social issues because social issues can influence the direction of science. When these American faculty members came back to the U.S. from their European university training, they arrived armed with the knowledge and skills to succeed as academic researchers. The European research university model is based on doing scientific research and presenting results as research publications. This is the model used in the U.S. today, and it was in the German labs under faculty mentorship that those American students learned laboratory science and the importance of research. While they were there, the American chemistry researchers had admired the German agricultural experiment stations, which were efforts in applied chemistry research 
directly involved with developing practical solutions for farmers. So when the American students came back to the U.S., their agricultural research plans were shaped in part by what they saw in Europe. The basic belief of the returning Americans, such as Pew and Johnson, was that there needed to be advanced agricultural research programs, not just teaching about agriculture, but also doing scientific research. Another key component shaping their research agenda was that the idea of the agricultural experiment stations also aligned with the researchers' pious aims of making direct improvements to society. From their European experiences, those returning graduates came to view scientific research in specialized university programs as essentially like engines for intellectual growth, which could lead to scientific progress, but also allowed for practical applications. Despite these lofty ambitions, the returning Americans were disappointed and frustrated when they tried to implement their ideas once back on American soil. Recall my earlier description of the status of the academy in the U.S. in the mid-19th century. There was no real understanding of an academic research institution. Colleges were mainly focused on teaching classical subjects. When the new American researchers tried to get funding for academic labs, they had difficulty in getting potential sponsors to understand the value of such research labs. Sponsors could only understand economic value, whether or not the scientists could help the farmers and farm owners turn a profit. After all, a farmer might think, what was the value in such research otherwise? So, after years of efforts trying to rally support, finally, in 1875, Johnson and others were able to convince the state of Connecticut to establish the first agricultural research station. And as I mentioned earlier, in 1887, the Hatch Act called for a national system of agricultural experiment stations in the U.S. Yet, despite these efforts, and though the agricultural experiment stations did play a role in developing the economic growth of American agriculture, the agricultural experiment stations did not reach the idyllic goals of the initial leaders like Pew and Johnson. More serious academic researchers who came later did not like the project's focus on practicality and the need to turn a profit for the farmers being helped. Autonomy is one of the reasons academic researchers like being academic researchers. They like being able to pursue interesting theories and ideas no matter where they might lead. And as an aside, they don't like being told what to do. The scientists helping with the agricultural experiment stations, however, were always tethered to helping specific farmers with specific needs. The work was too applied for those scientists who came after the founders trained in Europe and who were raised within the cultural context of the 1850s, like the idealistic Pew and Johnson. So that short arc is it for the scope of the paper by Charles Rosenberg. The main point of this case study was to illustrate how the culture and social values of the 1850s in America, along with the experiences of young scientists traveling and training abroad, served to shape the scientific institution of the American agricultural research stations. I thought this paper was interesting because it highlighted a time when academic research programs in American higher education were just being developed. I mentioned Virginia Tech's origins as a land-grant university in 1872, and in 1876, our nation got its first research university with Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. 
The United States was a developing country at the time, and for a scientist, unless you could provide an immediate result or return for someone's investment, you weren't of much use. It took time to convince U.S. governments, leaders, and society in general that there was a benefit to research, that science could become an engine for innovation and growth. Now, that realization in the U.S. will come later. I expect to talk more about that specific benefit of science and the time when America had its scientific engine light bulb moment in a future podcast episode. But at least here, in the 1850s, that cultural scientific sophistication was just in its infancy. Now, as for the other three papers I had mentioned, let me briefly summarize them here in case you'd like to read them yourself. I had mentioned about America in the mid-19th century, the economic forces of manifest destiny and progress in general. In business, especially towards the late 19th century, the ideas of scientific management were taking hold. We discussed this way back in episode two of the podcast regarding Taylorism and the push to automate factory workflows. Socially, America was captivated by social Darwinism, how the ideas of natural selection, or so people thought back then, meant that we could use measurements of people to categorize them into things like intelligent or imbecile or white or black. These traits could then be used to forecast who will be a success and who will be able to usefully contribute to society, and, contrary, who will not. And during that time period, admiration for the principles of eugenics meant that Americans should perhaps only keep in society those who are smart, successful, and who can contribute to society, i.e., we should get rid of the undesirables. That is precisely the focus of the paper Eugenics in North America by Daniel Kevels. I think this paper is worth looking at, especially because you can see flavors of a resurgence of similar eugenics ideas in society today. Look, for example, at the arguments people give to support the ideas for who can immigrate into the country and who can vote. The paper also illustrates early science and the rationales, or lack of them, for turning flimsy scientific evidence into law and social policies. Science in the Cradle, Millicent Shen and her home-based network of baby observers, 1890-1910, by Christine von Ertzen, details the efforts of Berkeley graduate Millicent Shen to be the first person to develop an observational approach for studying human infants scientifically. Through her efforts, Shin developed a network of college-educated mothers to also collect data on infants, systematically and over time, to create a better understanding of early childhood development. So this paper is interesting because it shows the difficulties in crossing the boundaries between male versus female social norms, the university versus the home, and scientific expert versus public amateur. The paper also broadens our conception of who can do science and where science can be done. The last paper I want to mention is Detecting Negro Blood, Black and White Identities and the Reconstruction of Sickle Cell Anemia by Keith Whalu. This paper details the long, arduous journey science took to develop an understanding of the sickle cell disease and the sickle cell anemia disorder. 
Along the way, we can see how the decisions the scientists and physicians made, the conclusions they made based on the evidence they, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, which you can't see in the podcast, saw, were influenced by their social values. Essentially, they viewed the blood of black people as deficient, a view that had a role in America's racial segregation and housing policies for decades to come. With today's problems with bias in machine learning and artificial intelligence, it seems that we're still struggling with some of the lessons from this paper. That data requires interpretation in order to construct meaning, and interpretation by humans and by extension, interpretation by machines built by humans, remains quite the slippery slope. And with that, we wrap up episode 12 of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thanks for listening. And right now, unless, of course, you're currently driving, please head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up. In addition to supporting the show, on Patreon, you can sign up to get the show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed in each episode, as well as additional writings, such as the new Lifestream guides. In any case, again, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. <laughs>